Well, this weekend, week four of Influence, and a big part of Influence at our church, of course, is our staff team, and we're really blessed by so many gifted people to serve our church as staff, and we ask our staff, those who uh, carry a great weight of influence, who influenced you? Here are their answers. When I think of influence, uh, I think of a man by the name of Jimmy Turner. Uh, he was uh, a pastor, and though he was retired, he was still very much at work um, in discipleship. And uh, when I was 22 years old, uh, fresh out of college and trying to pursue a call to ministry, uh, he spent time to get to know me and invest in me. And that uh, relationship carried on for uh, three or four years, uh, up until literally months before he went home to be with the Lord. And though it was just a few years, it, felt like a lifetime of, of valuable spiritual wisdom that uh, I'll carry on with me uh, as I continue to go. When I think of influence, I always think of my mom. She just influenced me in an active, but also like a passive way. And the passive way is really what I think about most. Like most things that I do, I do just like my mom because I watched her do them over and over and over again. I boil potatoes the same way she does. I wash my laundry the same way she does. So she really just influenced me to be the woman I am today. Uh, when I think of influence, I think of my mentor, uh, Rocky Shack. Uh, he provided an opportunity for me, I think, just as a person, just inviting me into community, just to invite me into connection. Uh, and I think over time, was blessed to even job opportunities opening up thanks to his care and seeing me when I, uh, in a season of life where I felt very unseen. So just very grateful for him and it allows me to have that same spirit with other people to not just only think about myself but think about the people who may other people just may not notice and see how I can care for them as well. When I think of influence, I think of my student pastor when I was growing up and uh, he noticed that I like to play guitar and I love being at church. And so he gave me an opportunity to be a part of the worship team for the very first time. And uh, it's a huge part of God revealing to me what he had planned for me uh, and what I'm doing right now even. So when I think about uh, influence, I think about my student pastor. So when I think of influence, I don't think of like one specific person, but it's it really goes back to my grandparents. And it's not like one specific conversation or topic or thing I learned from them, but it's their um, consistent and persistent input in my life through all areas of life, whether that's church or how they did their job or the friends they kept, the relationships they made and how they poured into our family and uh, all the grandkids growing up. I think really that's who comes to mind when I think of influence. When I think of influence, I think of Beverly K. Back. I was a freshman at San Diego State University and a new Christian and got involved with a campus ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, and she was on staff. She became my spiritual mentor. She modeled to me loving Jesus and college students which actually inspired me to go into full-time Christian ministry and on staff with Campus Crusade. And then, several years later, we were in each other's weddings. So that was a very pivotal relationship for me at a real critical time in my life. 
When I think of influence, I think of women who have taken time to have significant impact in my life and key times of my life. Currently, it's a woman who is further down the line. She's got older kids and she is maneuvering having a gospel-centered family in a scary, dark world. She is greatly influencing me. And then I think of two other seasons of life. Um, a couple that took my husband and I in and let us see what it looks like to have a family with young kids and how to speak the gospel into them and over them. And they let us see what it looks like to start a family. And then before that, I think of a time right after college uh, where I had a woman who just spent time with me and helped me grasp the concept of God as a gracious God and that we never outgrow the gospel. These three women have been pivotal in the last 10 years of my life. So when I think about influence, I think um, about some of my closest friendships and um, God's been gracious to me to give, to give me some give me really many deep relationships with people. And um, I can remember when I first started entertaining following Jesus when I was 21, I met a close friend of mine, Brett Barnhill. And um, I can't um, express in 45 seconds the profound impact that he's made on my, on my life over the years. But um, Brett, along with um, several other young men, um, taught me what it means to love Jesus with all of my heart and um, to recognize Him as a Lord. And so early on, uh, we connected and formed a deep relationship that still exists today. And I'm so thankful for my brother, Brett. I'm thankful for all of them, and I'm thankful for those who influenced them, especially Beverly Kayback, who influenced my wife at San Diego State and who stood at our wedding. I'm glad she stood with Susan at that time in her life. Uh, God has designed the church to be multi-generational. And it's like this. It's like you take the perspective of the old and you mix it with the passion of the young. And, you know, when, when the Bible talks about influence, it's talking about life-on-life -life mentoring relationships, not the blue check of celebrity influence on social media and such, but life-on-life, -life, a deep abiding, uh, this is Jesus in me, and I want to see Jesus formed in you. Uh, many times, it's, uh, as these most relationships describe, someone older taking in someone under them and pulling them in under their wing. Sometimes, like Chris Mixon, who's in our first service, it's like Chris and Brett, who's in our second service here. And Brett and Chris are peers. They're equal in age and such, but Brett impacted Chris as peers. Uh, we see that in the Bible. We see it with Paul, Paul rather, and Barnabas. We see it with uh, Jonathan and David in the old. Peer-to-peer -peer relationships are so vital. But more times than not, I believe what the church needs more of, and I want to fan the flames of this, is that the the perspective of the old would mix with the passion of the young. Kids are lacking perspective. Several years ago, just a few years ago at a funeral, uh, we were having a moment within the moment. Just a couple of us noticed this, but we, uh, there was a passing of an older man who lived a full life where there was emotions in the room, but there was a little kid who was six or seven years old, y'all, and he was hovering around the casket, and he was peering into the casket, and I was watching him, like kind of the, the, again, the moment within the moment, and this little guy, curious, reaches his hand into the casket and puts his hand on the folded hands of the dead guy in the casket, and immediately his eyes did like that, and he, he pulled back, and the dad in me said, hey, are you okay? And the little boy said, I'm fine, but he's not. Um, <laughs> One of my favorite stories of 2023 was an eight-year-old boy who watched um, 
instructional videos on YouTube on how to drive a car. One night when his parents were asleep, eight-year-old boy, one night when his parents were asleep, he wakes up and commandeers his four-year-old sister, puts her in the family minivan, drives two miles to the nearby McDonald's and orders two Happy Meals. They did not notice until he got to the window window that there were no adults in the car. They call the police, the story ends well, and the boy is quoted in the newspaper as saying, I really just wanted a cheeseburger. (laughs) I have a friend, his name is Pete. Pete lives in Wisconsin. He works with a crew up there in in Wisconsin, way up in the frozen north where like it it takes like May, deep into May for it to thaw out where he lives. And Pete tells a story, they got a bunch of kids, but one of his sons, when he was years ago, a senior in high school, he was sleeping in. He probably had senioritis. You know what it's like to be a senior in high school. You're kind of, kind of mail it in. You want to get the most possible sleep and arrive at school at the last possible moment. And so that's what this kid was doing. He was, it got to the point where he's waking up 10 minutes before school started. But the trippy thing is, he was never tardy. He never got any. So the dad, my friend Pete, says, hey, son, what's going on? Uh, leaving, waking up 10 minutes and leaving and not getting any tardies. He said, well, dad, I, I don't travel with the, all the other traffic. He goes, what I do is I drive over here. I, I, I drive across this frozen lake. And the, my friend Pete's like, you know, don't tell your mom, and you better stop in the summer. But uh, notice all those are boys. Can I just say that? The prefrontal cortex is not. Meg, you got a few young ladies there with you. They're, they're probably good to go. But it, here's, what, here's what kids need. Here's what young people need. Massive word on the screen. They're lacking perspective. Kids need perspective. They have limited knowledge, limited life experience. Children struggle to see the big picture. Children struggle to see the end of the picture. And what's needed are people to come around them and say, here's the big picture. Hey, this is the end of the picture. Let me impart to you the knowledge that will help you. Let me show you uh, about the, the experiences in life that will help you. So We come today, and I want you, if you will, to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. It'll be a little different today, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Find that, if you will, and we're going to put it on the screen. I understand a couple of folks brought it to our attention that the words on the Bible passage aren't big enough on the screen. So we want to encourage you. We'll try to do our part, but you guys just sit down front. Sit closer. Next week when you come, sit closer, and you'll see. In fact, you could get up now and come on down front. We would be like... Bob Barker, Price is Right, come on down. We would welcome you in the name of Jesus. But we'll get there in just a moment, but I don't want you to be nervous or anxious. Even though this is our text, we're going to have a lot of Bible, but save the text sort of toward the end, and uh, we'll pop through that real quick. But really important, 2 Timothy chapter 1. So Paul meets a young fella named Timothy. In Acts 16, note takers, write that down and read those first five verses of Acts 16 for context. But Paul meets a young guy named Timothy, and here's what we know about Timothy. Timothy had a Jewish mom and Timothy had a Greek dad. Timothy's mom fought, was a follower of Jesus. His dad was not. So it, you know, it stands to reason, we're left with this impression, that Timothy lacked a strong male influence in his life. The passage we'll get to in a moment, right on the outskirts of it, it says, and you saw some of our staff paying tribute to the parents and grandparents, um, but you know, he's got a a grandmother named Lois and a mother named Eunice, and they passed the baton, the torch of faith, onto them. Listen, God's called us to be a multi-generational church. There's no baton, no torch uh, that's greater to be passed than our faith. And that's what we see in Timothy. We see that in Timothy. So Paul, um, biblical evidence, uh, as the story unfolds, shows us, hey, I'm going to be that influence uh, in his life. And so he takes him 
under his wing. And what he gives him is what those three boys in that story needed, and those stories I shared. What Timothy needed is someone to influence him, to speak strongly into his life, and to impart to him this beautiful word that we all, no matter our age, at times are lacking. When you're going through something that just blinded you emotionally, that's, uh, you could be there now, you need perspective. You, you need perspective. So Paul gives him that. Oh, God's called us to be a multi-generational church, perspective of the old, clashing with the passion of the young. And here's what he says, uh, not in that passage, we'll get to it, but I want you to look at what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. Uh, he gives him perspective on what he should pursue, what is worthy of pursuing. Man, it's hard to hang out with someone who's my age or older, and they've been pursuing the wrong things all of their lives. A man that I admire in men's group Friday morning said to our guys last Friday, he said, man, I am decades and decades old, and I've just wasted so many years. And he said it through tears. What we need are men and women who are older to say, hey, young people, pursue this. But notice what he says. He goes to the negative. Flee from youthful passions. Worldly lust, some verses say. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. There are some things not worthy of pursuing. My mentor in college told me, he said, he actually put this in a book he would later write, but lust can't wait to get, love can't wait to give. And listen, pursue love. Pursue love, not the lust, not what you can consume. And by the way, the modern American mindset is consume, consume, consume and discard. Consume and dispose of. Consume and consume. And Paul is writing this young protege, this church planter in Ephesus, and he's saying to him, hey, don't follow after you. In fact, flee. And that word is like, if you remember the Old Testament, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, uh, she came on to him. I'll try to keep it uh, rated PG. She came on to him and he uh, fled in his fruit of the Niles into the desert. Uh, He fled. The same, similar language here. Flee, get out. uh, get, Get away from it. Don't flirt with it. And Can we just say what the scripture says? There's pleasure in sin for a season. Some of you today could be flirting with something and it's making you feel good, but in the end, it's going to lead to death. It's a a passion that doesn't bring life. It's wrong. It's an affront to God and it's not good for your relationships. It's not good for you. You're having trouble looking other people in the eyes and yourself in the mirror because of this pursuit. So he says, I want to give you this perspective, perspective of the old to the passions of the young. Be careful what you pursue. And notice what he calls in pursuit, righteousness, faith, peace, and love. At the end of this sermon, we're going to take communion. You'll be invited to a communion station in the front of the room. I'm so glad that I don't have to earn this myself. Anybody? Don't think for a second. If you're not a church person and you just stumbled in here today or you're watching online, don't think because I'm the guy up front talking. I'm the orator that I've got this figured out. Listen, righteousness is a gift from God. In fact, the only peace, Romans 5 says, the only peace we have is due to our righteousness granted to us through Jesus Christ. Pursue faith, love, peace, and that righteousness. Go after it. And listen, notice what he says. Be careful who you walk with. Don't pursue youthful passions. There's some people that you probably need to cut out of your life. There's some people you may need to cut out of your life, no matter your age. They may not be bringing you life. They may not be helping you pursue 
God. And that sounds like a hard thing, like trust them to God. Trust them to God. God's got them. They, he's got other things, other relationships for them. But you may need to say, uh-uh, because they're not pursuing after God like I need them to. So do those things. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord. Gather with his people. Circle up. Get out of rows and into circles. And even in those circles, look for that man. Look for that woman. Look for that person that could be influential uh, in your life. He gives him a perspective on pursuit. What is worthy to be pursued? He gives him a perspective on pain. Look what he would say in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Remember, save 2 Timothy 1. We're going to get there at the end. But 2 Timothy 3, he says, but know this, hard times will come in the last days. It's going to hurt. There's going to be pain. There's going to be suffering. It's going to be very difficult. He gives him a head up, heads up. C.S. Lewis was a professor of philosophy and literature at Cambridge University in Oxford. He was a devout atheist. And his atheism was fueled in large part through the pain of his life. His mom died when he was young. His dad was absent in his life. He fought in France on the front lines of World War I where he was wounded. He had buddies in battle that died. His sweet wife, Joy, died of cancer. Pain fueled his disbelief in God. But later he would write, I bet many of you have heard this, he would talk about how God whispers to us in our pleasure, speaks to us in our conscience, and shouts to us in our pain. In fact, he would say this famous line, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And have you noticed, pain either strengthens us or weakens us. And forget yourself for a moment. You, you know of people. That's been true. Somebody that's been through the same thing, a heartache, a breakup, a terrible thing, something that happened to them, and it strengthened somebody, but it weakened another. And pain can have this effect in us. It can produce the peaceful fruits of righteousness if we let it, if we allow, and if we have the proper perspective. And young people are lacking this. Young people need people to look at them and say, this world is hard. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Let me tell you what's coming. And we preach this a lot here. Jesus said in John 14, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but don't let your hearts be troubled. How's that for a walking contradiction? How's that for a tension that we must hold? You're going to have trouble in this world, but don't let trouble take over your heart. And pain has this effect. I want you to have the proper perspective on what's worthy to, to pursue. And I want you to have the proper perspective on the pain that you're going to experience. As I see some of you living with your suffering, and I have no idea what calamity is coming my way or yours, what's next. But I'm so grateful for Revelation 21.4. And the older I get, the more I believe God is cementing it into my heart and believing it. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Anybody ready for that day? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it inspiring? And I know, I know, to the skeptic I'll say, oh, that's a nursery rhyme. It's a lullaby. It's a fairy tale. It's a figment of someone's imagination. Could be. Could be. Oh, it's just a crutch to help us get through. But I believe, and my prayer is that it will be stubborn and unyielding in your heart. Because, listen, it's God. Read some Lewis. Read the problem of pain. That's, that's a testimony to God stirring something. This is not right. This suffering, this death, this loss, it's not right. And listen, this, read it again. Look at it. This is heaven, not here. 
This is heaven, not here. Most of the time I do funerals these days. I'm glad I still do a lot more weddings. I'll look at the congregation. I'll look at the family on the front row, wherever I am. And I will, I will say to them, hey, we're walking by faith now, not by sight. We long for this, this, we long for this heaven. But it's, it's not here. Heaven is later. And one day, in the midst of the loss, one day God... We're going to walk in by sight, and I can't wait for that day. What kind of pain? Paul would spell it out, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. He would say this, for people will be lovers. These are the end times. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. You thought he was done. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. Avoid these people. This is how hard it's going to be. He spelled it out, and he can, you can see it, can't you? You can see it in our world. To follow Jesus is to live differently. Uh, it, the call is to be uh, compelling and to be dangerous and to be uh, faithful and to be inspiring. And by the way, can I just say this sermon, this whole story is uh, written. It's written to a young leader who was given a difficult assignment, and he refused to quit. My prayer is that everybody in the room has a noble purpose and under that a difficult assignment. You say, I'm not coming back to Fonder. The guy wants life to be difficult. Look, it's, life is just going to be difficult. But it's in the difficult assignment that you know oftentimes that you have a noble purpose. A young leader with a difficult assignment who refused to quit. And he says, this is the difficulty. Let me show you a picture. Um, it delighted the people in the first service and they were already fact-checking me on this. And you're welcome to after church. This is a cow from Poland. This cow, as the story goes, was approached by his cattle ranchers. They were approaching him, and he knew what was up. He knew that it was his time for the slaughterhouse. Now, cows, uh, some of you know, cows are, they are stubborn. This guy, exceedingly stubborn. So this cow in Poland takes off running. He jumps into the lake and swims to an island about a mile away. The rancher's like, oh my goodness. He gets some of his buddies. They get in a boat and they go get him. The head rancher broke his ribs uh, trying to find, get the cow. They located him, but then the cow swam to another island. He began to zigzag for several hours. The cow was swimming away from them. And I was thinking as I read this story online this week that, man, the, um, what a marketing guru for Chick-fil-A, right? Eat more chicken. This should be their cow. And some of you will be happy to know they spared this guy's life, said he'll be a pet and when his heart stops beating, that's when it's his time. I'm going to show you a bird called the Godwit. G-O-D, God, wit, W-I-T, Godwit, one word. This bird, they only, um, they only weigh about two pounds. And this bird, they're born in the northern, northernmost part of Alaska. And there's no other migration like this one. There's some cool migration stories. The salmon, and y'all know this about but. Air or land or sea, there's nothing like this, like this whole other level, literally and figuratively. But the Godwit will fly from Alaska to New Zealand, to the outer reaches. Some go on to Australia, but mostly it's Alaska and New Zealand. Uh, they fly and they, they go without stopping for nine days. That's 7,000, some of you, you don't believe me, look it up. 7,400 plus miles they go twice a year, the Godwit. And when it's time for death, there's this instinct in them, this honing instinct, which I believe we have as well. They got to get back home. Where is home? 
They've got to get home and they fly back and the, most of them, the same nest they were born in, they fly back to, to die in. We fight death with everything in us. We, along with that, this refusal to give up our lives, there, with, within that, there is this honing instinct within us that we're not home, that, that this is not our home. And with this virus that went around, and I just remember going, man, uh, I thought I was afraid of death. And then I hung around with some of you who were really afraid of death. And I, listen, this is not our home. And I, I'm with you in that sense of like you fight it and you fight it and you fight it and you swim away from the slaughter. You want to live, you want to live, but you also know this is not our home. Paul would write to the church at Philippi in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, and he would say, for our citizenship is not in heaven, uh, we eagerly wait for a Savior there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. After the 930 service, I was talking to a friend over here, and he's having rotator cuff surgery this week. And his orthopedic surgeon was here uh, in, sitting in the back of the church. He's like, man, I wish I'd have got to my orthopedic surgeon. He's going he's gonna to take care of my shoulder Wednesday. When you get my age, you got friends uh, like I have, we are really reminded of our humble condition. This body is wearing out and rusting out, and one day it'll end. That heart that beats within you 108,000 times per year will stop one day. And he says, I want you to have perspective on what's worthy to pursue. I want you to have perspective on pain and how hard it's going to be. And I want you to have perspective on your purpose, and along with that is your home. There's a honing instinct in you. That says there's got to be more. There's got to be more to this. And listen, y'all, there is more. And there is a home in heaven one day. Um, I pray that will alter the course of your life and help you influence other people. I want to live my life in such a way to take as many people there who want to go. Our citizenship, it's there. With um, the world we live in, there's a lot of um, lack of peace. There's a lot of conflict. The United Nations, um, Larry, I'm going to skip over a couple of passages here, but the United Nations got together, some world leaders, let me say it like this, some world leaders got together uh, right after World War II, and they said, man, we can't let Germany attack its neighbors anymore. Hey, we can't let Jap Japan bomb America or any other nation. So these world leaders got together. They formed what is now called the United Nations. Uh, I was reading the opening paragraph of the United Nations this week, and it says this, to maintain international peace and security, to take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace and for suppression of acts of aggression or other breaches of the peace. This is in the opening paragraph of the handbook. Every decade since this was written, look at every decade. In the 50s, North Korea invaded South Korea. In the 60s, North Vietnam attacked South Vietnam. Uh, in the 70s, the Soviet Union and Afghanistan went to war. Uh, in the 80s, Iran and Iraq. You may have heard about that. In the 90s, a, plan, a place where I lived for a couple of years, uh, two summers in a row, in Belgrade, Yugoslavia, the Serbians and the Croatians got after each other. The same bloodline, but they got after each other. On and on and on. Name your decade. Name the current day. And there's some 200 and something nations. That number has stayed pretty consistent, although countries change their names and get invaded and such, such like that. There's 210, 220 uh, nations in the world and over 50% are at war or they're brimming with war. They have some kind of conflict happening. 
Peace is what we say we want, but we want power and control more. And we have a hard time loving our brother. We have a hard time pursuing what we need to pursue. And so Paul writes to Timothy, a young leader with a difficult assignment that he refuses. He refuses to give up. He refuses to quit. So now, now finally, toward the end of the sermon, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. Uh, those are great names. Can I just give a charge? Some of you that are still going to make babies one day. How about these names? Bring these names back. All right, y'all would make me proud. Lois and Eunice. He says, I'm convinced that this faith that's so sincere, it's in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear. Ever heard that? But he's given us one of power, love, and sound mind or judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. When I was a young man, a pastor that I admire said to me, Robert, we make spiritual growth way too complex. He goes, here's what you need. You need truth, God's word shaping your heart and mind. He said, you need touch, meaningful care and relationships. You need tension, pain, suffering, difficulty and hardship. And you need time. And that's maybe what we forget. Some of you are going to give up too soon. Some of you are ready to throw in the towel. Don't. God's still working. You say, preacher, it hurts. Yes, it hurts. And what I love about that truth, God's word shaping our hearts and minds, a touch, meaningful care and relationships, that's what we see here. We see Paul touching a leader. And a touch can be creepy for some of us. And I hate the vile evil, the reason why that is for some of us. I just hate it, trying to keep this to a, all audiences here. But touch is this gift of God, like love that's been abused and misapplied. And we have hearts that have been hurt because of it. Lives wrecked and destroyed. But touch, along with God's truth, is us saying to each other, I see you. Remember what Larry said in the video? Rocky Shack, a leader, a pastor, friend, he saw me when I didn't feel seen. He gave me a job. He promoted me. He, in essence, said, hey, I see something in you. And that's what Paul is saying. I see a gift in you, Timothy. I see a gift in you. And he lays on hands and says, I want to fan the flames. I want it to be, what does this version say? Uh, I want it to be rekindled, what is seen in you, this gift that you have. Do you know your spiritual gift? If you're going to be an influencer, you need to know how God has gifted you. I, here's three words I share when it comes to discerning a spiritual gift. The gift in you that 1 Timothy 1.6 talks about, it's tied to ability, affinity, and affirmation. Ability, what are you good at? What are you good at? What, what, what talents do you have? What proficiencies and capabilities? That when you put your hand, your heart, your mind to it, man, it, it's a good thing. You can do it well. See that as a gift from God. What affinity do you have? This is emotions. Emotions are important. Don't be too stoic, okay, some of y'all. Emotions are important. What makes you cry? What makes you laugh? What makes you angry? We always discount anger as a sin. Remember Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Anger, there's a justified anger. And I have a good friend who's doing something really good in the world in the name of Jesus because he got angry at something. He got angry at an injustice and he followed that. Your ability, what you're good at, your affinity, where God moves you and your emotion, and then your affirmation. This is important but can be tricky. Uh, what do other people say about you? What gifts are affirmed in you? You need, and this is why we need mentoring. This is why we need uh, multi-generational relationships in our church. Older women 
Titus 2, older men, Titus 2 and Timothy, that look at someone young and say, this is what I see in you. And what, here's the cool thing. Larry, I don't know if we can go back to 1 Timothy 5, 21, is it, where Timothy had a condition that made it difficult, verse 23. Don't continue drinking only water. This will preach. But use a little wine because of your stomach. And free. Can we get an amen from the back row? I mean, uh, I think we did. Yeah. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine. because it, Frequent illness is what I want to point out. All right? We'll let the doctors handle all this later. They clean up my mess here. But for, Timothy was sick a lot. He, he took all his sick days. And Paul is writing and saying, there's this gift in you, but man, there's this hardship. And, and trust God when it gets difficult. If you look at Acts 16, I think I recommend this, Acts 16, 1 through 5. It says that, uh, Acts 16, 2, kind of an obscure passage, but it says that uh, those in Lystra and Iconia, the brothers and sisters, uh, they saw something good in Timothy. And when you're following Jesus and you're locked in with other people, uh, people will see something in you and they'll, they'll affirm that and they'll call it out in you. I'm so thankful that people have done that in my life. And I pray that we'll be that kind of community that when you don't feel seen, we'll see you. When you, you have something percolating, we'll fan that into flames and there'll be the rekindling of that. God will use the truth of his word to shape your heart and mind. He'll use touch, meaningful care and relationships. He'll use tension, the pain, suffering, difficulty, and hardship in your life and give him time uh, to do his work. Okay, he goes on to say uh, in this passage about uh, fear, the spirit of fear. There is so much to be afraid of. I didn't do this in the first service, but raise your hand if you got something in your life that maybe you could be, you could be scared of. Just something that brings fear. Maybe it might take a five minutes of your sleep up tonight. Uh, anybody afraid of something? Fear is so normal. Fear is so very natural. There's a good fear that God gave you. It's a fear. Listen, it Fear of punishment prevents a toddler from running away. Fear of falling prevents an old man from climbing up a ladder. Fear of a speeding ticket prevents you from driving really fast uh, down the road. There's a healthy fear, but what happens with us, a lot of psychology in this, uh, uh, research in this, but fear is a good thing because it makes you assess your environment like a smoke detector or something. Say, hey, I need, to get, I need to get away. That cow, hey, there's a slaughter guy. I need to get out of here, right? I need to swim to various islands and break his collarbone. And it's like, like I need to get, that. there's a good healthy fear. The problem is we take that natural activating fear and we put it with our imagination. And we put our imagination kicks in and it kicks in. And I'm a fan of, of having an active mind and a fertile imagination. Parents with young children, read to your children. Oh, my goodness. But our imagination can get the best of us because it starts going to every worst-case scenario. And I don't know. I'm not an expert, but I know there's a story of Esther in the Old Testament. She's called to summon the king. They were afraid of the king. And she's summoned to, to, to go to the king and to... Uh, speak to him on behalf of the Hebrew people. And so you know what she did? She considered the worst case scenario. And she said this great line in the Bible, if I perish, I perish. There's something bigger. Now I don't know if anybody's got a sword at a guillotine at your neck from a king, but I know you got some big problems and no matter what it is, God is bigger than what you're afraid of right now. No matter what it is, God is bigger than what your fear is right now. And so submit that to him. And here's the thing. It's not the absence of fear. It's the appropriate action in the fear. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom.
Romans 3.18, Paul would give, said one of the signs of a decadent society is there's no longer any fear of God before their eyes. Man, we need a healthy fear of God, that reverential awe that he's calling the shots and not us. He's the one with all the power and control, not us. We hurt and harm one another. We Nations invade nations. We come up with groups like the United Nations and form peace treaties. But there's so much conflict because we're not, we don't have a fear of God. We need a healthy fear of God. You remember when Jesus would say, don't be afraid of him who's able to kill the body. And I remember I heard that when I was a young person. I'm like, uh, Jesus, I mean, what else we got here? Like, don't be afraid of the guy that's mean to you. I got that. Don't be afraid of the person who, like, steal. I, 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 get, I get a lot, but that kills the body. I mean, that's, that's what we got, right? He says, only fear the one who's able to kill both body and soul in hell. Fear God. And don't think you're going to live with the apps. I can't tell you how many young people I will talk to, and they will think because something's difficult or because they're afraid that they shouldn't pursue it. And I scratch my bald head and I say, you know, that may be the very reason you should pursue it. You could find God. This is so far from your recliner, your lazy boy, your comfort zone. That, woo, that's God right there. Man, I hope and pray that my kids have a noble purpose and a difficult assignment as young people and they will, will refuse to quit when it gets difficult. Don't fear man. Fear God. I wonder... What fear or what pain is preventing you from utilizing the, God, the gift that God has given you? I would hope to rekindle that. There's a few men in my life where we made a decision about a year and a half ago. We were reading something together and it said that a man's life, uh, the, any success you might see gives you a platform. And the platform could be its best from the years 55 to 70. And I see too many men and women, I would guess. I, I know more about men. I am one. My closest friends are men. But I see too many men that are on the sidelines and think, oh, my humble condition, I'm washed up. You may not have the passion you had when you were a young man, but you have the perspective. And you could talk about a worthy purpose. You could talk about pain. You could talk uh, on and on about a pursuit into the lives of young people. I pray that for our church. I can't help but think some of you are acquiescing to fear right now. And there's a gift that's, lay, that's lying dormant in your life because of it. As the team comes up, the praise team, there'll be a little bit of motion and stirring in the room. I want to just talk about fear for one more second. God, notice what Paul says. Great perspective from the old guy. He says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. So there's all kinds of reasons. Most hands went up. I saw you, a couple of you being resistant to raise your hand in church. Um, but most hands went up when I asked you if you have something to be scared of. There's plenty to be scared of. I'll probably be scared about something later today. Something will get me and I'm going to be scared. But God has not given you the spirit of fear. What's he given you? The spirit in you. The spirit of God for every Christian. The spirit of power and love and sound judgment. When Jesus talked about fear, he said, take today, let tomorrow take care of itself. And I know when I have been derailed in my calling, when I've hurt other people in my life and I've dishonored God, I know that uh, I've been so worried about tomorrow. 
I haven't lived in today. And so I, I do want to say one quick story about the guy who mentored me. He would say, Robert, have you got a win today? And this guy was like a real intense gym person, you know, like going to the gym all the time, chiseled and everything. Real, but loved the Lord and loved me. He's like, hey man, if you got a win today, you always talk about you know, get a win, get, get three wins, get a physical win, you know, running, cycling, swimming, lifting, uh, get a mental win, reading, learning, uh, studying, et cetera. Get a spiritual win, praying, meditating, worshiping, get a win. If you got, have you got a win today? Have you got all three wins today? But what I loved is I've moved further and further away from him and, our, and the time I had with him in the same town is I just think about the word today. Like that guy was focused on today. And sometimes, unfortunately, I'm a tomorrow guy. And that can hurt me. And I know it's, it's crushing some of you. Let him take care of tomorrow. Get a win today. Absence of fear, uh-uh. Appropriate action in fear. That's where you'll find God. Would you stand? Father, bless this word and thank you for the opportunity to worship as you said worship to take the elements, the bread and the juice representing the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, to do this in remembrance of you. Father, receive our worship as we partake now. Remind us of our need for you. Where our perspective is wrong, where our passions are leading us astray, where we're believing lies about the pain that we've experienced and the loss, I pray that you bring us back to the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, in you. Amen. Not a lot of instruction. Everyone's welcome to the table. If you know Jesus as your Savior, some of our leaders are making their way up to the stations. Follow the person in front of you. If you're a Christian, follow the person in front of you, and uh, you'll take the bread. You'll take two cups. Make your way back to your seat. When you get to your seat in your own timing, as our team leads us, uh, when it's right for you, take, partake of both uh, as a simple act of worship. I say this often, but I ask you, church, aren't you glad that we have a Savior? Aren't you glad that He gives us the gift of righteousness, that we don't have to foolishly earn it ourselves?